Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. <clears throat> Brother Ryan has already read our text for us this morning from this chapter. We'll be looking at many verses in this chapter. But before we begin, let's ask the Lord's blessings upon us once more. Heavenly Father, as we come before You, if we could just get a glimpse of what You're like, we'd be instantaneously changed. Father, we pray that we'd bow our hearts before You now and hear Your Word that You would be pleased to speak truth to us because we're a needy people. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. In the previous chapters, we find out that God had miraculously moved in the hearts of the kings of Persia to allow the Jews to return to their homeland and the holy city of Jerusalem. Early on, God had spoke to the heart of Cyrus. And where we are in this text is decades later. Earlier in the book of Ezra, men became, began to come. The people began to return to the land. Decades had come and gone, and then God spoke to Darius to bring, uh, issued another decree. And now by the time we get to chapter 9, uh, Ezra has come upon the scene with letters from Artaxerxes. So God was working. A people that had been dispersed 70 years in captivity was coming to a close. And God was bringing His people back to the land of promise. So it was a glorious time of thanksgiving, a time of joy, a time of, of weeping in First of all, remembering that first temple, the temple of Solomon, that had been totally laid waste. And there were some that were still present that day that could remember uh, that temple. And, and now the fact that, that it had been laid to ruins. But now the temple was being restored. A totally new temple was being built. There were prophets there that were on the scene before Ezra and Nehemiah got there. In particular, Haggai and Zechariah were preaching and, and exhorting the Word of God and the people's hearts were being changed as the law was uh, preached to the people. So God was doing a great thing. And then, by the time we come to chapter 7, Ezra, who was a highly skilled scribe, one who is described as being an expert in the law, in some respects, he is to the Old Testament what the Apostle Paul was to the New Testament. He comes upon the scene. A scribe, an expert in the law, as well as a priest. Ezra had seen the workings of God. Others had, had gone back to Jerusalem and the land of Israel prior to this. And Ezra was preparing his heart, the Scriptures tells us to know the law of the Lord, and to teach what God had called him to do. So now Ezra is on the scene, excited about teaching the Word of God, along, 
along with he and many other leaders in Israel as well. As they made the journey, uh, the previous chapters refer to the fact that they were fasting and praying and seeking the presence of God. And God was re- uh, God had blessed the people and the people were rejoicing in that what God had done and what God was about to do. Then we come to chapter 9. And a problem has occurred. In the midst of this joy, this revival, this thanksgiving, we read, And when all of these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of this land. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. God had warned the children of Israel that these people would be a stumbling block and a snare to you. He had told them prior to this they were, they were to wipe out these people because they were a people that were wholly given to their sins. They were reprobate as far as the faith was concerned. They were going to be uh, a snare to the people. And He said to separate from them. But that because they were not obedient to God's first admonition to wipe these people out, here they are. They're still remaining. And it is as we read here. They had become a snare to the people. They had begun to do abominable things. They had taken upon their lives, in their lives, the lives of these pagan nations that were around them. Read in verse 2. For they have taken some of the daughters, some of their daughters, the Canaanite peoples, as their wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed... You see that is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the land, the land, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. It's enough that the people of Israel had taken uh, taken these these pagan wives, these pagan women as wives, but the leaders were the ones, the leaders, the priests, the Levites. They were the ones that were leading the people astray. And they had mixed that seed, that holy seed of God, the children of Israel, with these pagan nations. The holy seed was mixed. And I tell you today, in Christendom, truer words cannot be spoken. The church as a whole today is mixed as well. We're mixed up, so to speak. You know, it's enough. We can expect the people of this world to be caught up in the sins of this world. But today, as it was in Israel of long ago, many people in the so-called church have embraced the things of this world and incorporated that into the church life as well. These things ought not to be. 
we see, for example, so-called believers in the church doing the same thing that the children of Israel were doing here. What was that? They were marrying foreign women. You know, we too are a people of God, the church. And the Scripture says by the Apostle Paul that if you're a child of God, that you're a Christian, then, that you ought not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And yet we see this, I'm not talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church as a whole. We see this as a norm. Believers, supposedly believers, those who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to go and marry a pagan or to live with a pagan. Okay? And many, much of this goes on right in local churches. This is okay. It doesn't happen here. Okay? But to be unequally yoked, uh, many churches wink, wink at abortion. They allow it to occur. They do not speak against it. They allow per- perversion to exist within the local church. Again, we expect this in the world. Today we see ungodly leaders in the church. Not only men, but women also. Men that are perverse, gay, homosexual men. Not just allowed in the church, but they're leading many churches. As well as lesbian women. Again, we expect this in the world. But when this becomes a norm in the local church, we can say the same thing that God says here. These things are an abomination to God and not, ought not to be a part of the people of God. Why, why are these things allowed? Well, maybe some are just absolutely ignorant. They don't know what the Word of God teaches. Others say, well, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we'll just make a concession to this. Surely God will look the other way. He's not really concerned with that. But the bottom line is that if you as a child of God, no matter who you are, if you allow these things to enter into your life or the life of your church, you're exhibiting a faithlessness before God and a desire simply not to please God at all. Look in verses Verse 9, we'll see what God's perspective is on this. For you were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, yet He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us. God had blessed them greatly to repair the house of God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah. And now, O our God, Ezra cries out to the Lord, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by the servants, your prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land. That's the way God views it. With the uncleanness of the peoples. Now that word there, For unclean land, or especially uncleanness, I think it's translated in the King James Bible as filthiness. Is that right? Keep your spot there and turn back to chapter 6 and verse 21. 
This will shed some light on the verse we're looking at. Then the children of Israel had returned, who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations in order to seek the God of Israel. See, God said, you're to be a separate people unto me, a holy people unto me. And for a while, these people that had were part of the deportations back to the land of Judah, they had done what God said, to separate themselves from the what? The filth of these pagan nations in order to seek the God of Israel. You see that? There, there is both separation and seeking. You can't be seeking God if you're entwined with the filth of this world. There's got to be a separation. That's not legalism. That's the Scriptures. That we have to be separated from the ways of the pagans if we're going to seek the Lord. But these people were filled with, with uncleanness, God says. This word uncleanness can be understood from many different perspectives. It was a term later that was used of those that were in prison that were not able to keep themselves clean. They were laying in some filthy cell without facilities, even to the point that they would have, and I'm not making this up, this is what this word means, contaminated by their own human excrement. They were dirty. They were filthy. That's the way God says He views these people. That's the way God views sin. He is a God who hates iniquity. It can also be used as as that which uh, refers to a woman's menstrual cloth that is soiled and has been set aside. God sees, this is the way God sees the pagan nations. They are unclean, we read there in verse 11. And the land is filled with their abominations, which they have filled from one end to another. What does that word abomination mean? Well, that gives us a further understanding of how God views the sin of these people. It means that which is a cause for hatred or disgust. In other words, these are the things that make God sick to His stomach. He cannot stand these things. He hates these things. Is this clear, folks? Is this clear? And yet, in, in, in modern day evangelical in many circles, we're just winking at things like this. And embracing them, and, embra- and bringing them into the midst of the congregation. And he also goes on to say here, uh, that they were impure. That is, the opposite of pure and holy. They were impure. The Scripture says in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 that we are without Christ. We are like that unclean thing and all of our righteousness are as these filthy rags. Unclean. Needing forgiveness. Needing cleansing. Jesus in Luke chapter 16, to back up and think again about the word abomination, as He was rebuking the Pharisees, 
He had just told the parable of the unjust steward and how it was impossible for you to serve both God and mammon or money. And then he said this in order to convict the Pharisees. He says, you are the ones who seek to justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. You see, that which we put before God, whether it's something in the flesh, whether it's something that we esteem more important, more highly than God, money, you cannot serve God in money, it's not just a minor detail of distraction. God hates it. It's an abomination to Him. Because you see, God is holy and pure and lofty and awesome and He's worthy of our praise. And if we claim His name, we claim to know Him and yet we bring these other things before the face of God, God hates it. God hates it. So we see a great problem here that was going on in the midst of revival, in the midst of God's blessing. And may I say, you know, God has God blessed Yes, this local church and God has blessed the evangelical church greatly and God has blessed our Reformed church greatly. And there's been so much blessing that has come from this. The truth of God that's been expounded. I praise God. And for in, in a sort, there has been uh, a revival from God in the last few decades. But now in the very midst of this, we see wickedness and evil creeping in. Well, what was the response of Ezra? Look there in chapter 9. In verse 3. <laughs> Again. Now, well, this, this didn't happen overnight. They didn't take these pagan uh, wives into their, into their families overnight. Again, decades has, been, has transpired. Ezra is now freshly on the scene. So when I heard this thing... Ezra says, I tore my garment and my robe and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard. That was very uh, common in Jewish circles. It was a sign of great remorse and sorrow that this was going on. Are we that sorrowful about the things we see around us? And he sat there, he says, and I was astonished. The word can also mean that he was appalled at what was going on. You get the picture, right? <laughs> in the midst of God's working, there's sin in the camp. There's a, they're pursuing wickedness. The absolute things that God said you are not to be involved with, they were involved with. And Ezra is astonished. He is appalled at what is going on. I thought of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Galatia. He said, I marvel that you are so soon turning away from Him who has called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He was amazed. He was marveling. He was appalled at the fact that we, listen folks, this is us, we have embraced the precious and perfect grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has offered to us his kindness, His love. He has saved us uh, solely by His grace and His mercy that He displayed for us 
when He provided our perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, we no longer have to be concerned about working for our salvation. What a glorious gospel of liberty. And yet these Galatians were turning back from it and saying, well, that's good, but we also need to be continuing in circumcision and the law of Moses in order to be saved. How ridiculous. Even so, it's ridiculous in this text that God pours out His grace upon His people and we, we, we somehow we, we get sidetracked. You know, really, sin is stupid, isn't it? You know, I don't know how else to put it. He he's lavishly poured out his grace, and then somehow we don't always appropriate that grace and are thankful for that. He was astonished. You know, I, and I, I I realize that times have always been bad for the children of God. We see that throughout the whole Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. But morally, folks, things are reaching an apex. Things are worse now than they were even decades ago. You expect it from the world, but it's coming into the church. What would men like Augustine think, or Luther, or Calvin? To see in the midst of the church what we are seeing today, they would be astonished. They would be appalled. And even men closer on, like some of my favorite men, like John Gill or, or Albert Barnes, we come on into the middle of the 20th century. Francis Schaeffer, James Montgomery Boyce, we could go on and on. What would these men of God think as they would see what's happening in the local church? Well, Ezra was astonished. We keep reading there. Look at verse uh, verse 6. Ezra cries out to the Lord, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. You see, he doesn't say, look what these people have done. No, he incorporates himself as one who is a leader in Israel, the one that shares in the sins of the body. He cries out, he, I, I'm so ashamed I, I can't even look unto you, Lord. Think about the New Testament and the parable between the tax collector and the Pharisee. How the tax collector before God in the temple was so ashamed that he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he smote his breast and cried out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He was ashamed. Keep your place there and look in chapter 8 and verse 22. Now we're going to go back here in the, in the history a little bit. This is when Ezra was, leading, was going back to the land of promise with some of the leading men of Israel. God had blessed them uh, along the way. And this is what he says. Another time he was ashamed. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of the soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemies on the road. Because, this is why Ezra was ashamed, because we had spoken to the king previously, and this is what he said, 
The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him, but His power and His wrath are against all those who forsake Him. You see, Ezra was giving to this uh, pagan king praise because of who the great God of the Scriptures is. And yet he was a little concerned that they were enemies along the road as they had faced enemies throughout the whole building of the wall and the temple. He says, I was ashamed to ask for more help because I had just spoken to those leaders about the glory and the grace of God that was working so powerful in us. So I didn't want to ask for more help. I would be ashamed to do so. How much more so now? How much more so now is Ezra ashamed by the fact that these people have joined themselves to these foreign women and were beginning to allow these idolatrous relationships into their life? He says there in chapter 9 of verse 6, not only was he ashamed, but he was humiliated to lift up my face. You see, again, it was not his sin directly, but it was the sin of his people. This morning, we talked about in the former hour the unity that we have as members one of another in the body of Christ. If one suffers, we all suffer. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. If one is in sin, it's as if we all are in sin because we grieve for that person that's in sin. This was the case with Ezra. He was so humiliated he could hardly lift up himself before the Lord. This should be our response with our own sin before God. This should be our response when we hear of another brother's sin. We'll not take the time to turn there, but you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when when Isaiah had a vision of the, the Lord of glory there in the temple. It was so glorious. The presence of God was upon him to the point that he cried out, Woe is unto me because I have seen the Lord of glory. He expected to fall down dead because he was in the absolute presence of God. And when you come in the presence of a holy, righteous God and you see yourself, what was Isaiah's response? Woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. He expected to fall down dead before this God. Woe is unto me. That's the only response, folks, that we ought to have in relationship to our sins or the sins of one another. So to cry out to God in sorrow and repentance and humility before God. That's the only response. And that is Ezra's response. But now let us look in our text and see what his response of the people at large. Look in chapter 9 and verse 4. Thankfully that not everyone in the assembly of Israel were were caught up in this sin of bringing in a, a foreigner into their family. Then everyone who trembled, there's a response we should have, we should tremble at the Word of God. When we ever get to the point where 
<laughs> we begin to take this as passe, as just a norm. We've forgotten the very nature of it. Now this is, do we believe this? If do we believe, yeah, you say, sure, brother, we believe this. Well, if this is the Word of God, we ought to heed it all the more seriously. And we should tremble before this because this is the very Word of God. And then everyone who trembled at the words of God, these were the faithful in Israel, they assembled to me because of the transgression of those that had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. I was trembling. I'm trembling for myself. Do you tremble right now? We prayed for our nation. We prayed for the church in this nation. We know the very nature of God. What is God going to do with this nation of wickedness that we live in? What is God going to do with His people who claim to know Him in the midst of this wicked nation? We ought to be trembling before this holy God. Now we're going to get to it in just a minute. But in chapter 10, verse 3, the penitent before God also tremble. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. It's interesting that by the time we get to chapter 66 in Isaiah, as Isaiah looks into the future, he foresees a time before it has even happened that the nation will go into captivity to Babylon. Furthermore, he foresees a time that they will be restored. And they will need then the temple to be rebuilt. Isaiah chapter 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is My throne and the earth is My footstool. Where is the house that will be built for Me? <laughs> and where is this place of My rest? You see, God knew that the people were concerned about this. But oh, how little did the people understand. What is God saying here to this people? Rhetorically, He's saying, do I really need a place where I can dwell? Is there really any place in this world that can contain me? <laughs> Interestingly, after the completion of the first temple, we refer to as Solomon's temple, Solomon had prayed this, he said, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, O Lord. How much less this temple which I have built. You know, Solomon had the right perspective. And Paul, when he was preaching before the Areopagus in Athens, had this to say, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needs something. You see, God encompasses the whole world. The very earth is where He rests His feet. 
He is high and lifted up. And above all, the whole earth cannot contain Him. He doesn't have a need that we worship Him. Nothing is added to the nature of God by us worshiping Him perfectly if we could. But yet God delights in the fact that we long to worship Him. So God says here, would you build a place for me? Where does God dwell? And by the way, let me interject this. It's interesting, you know, the Solomon's temple was one of the greatest amazing structures in all the world. And this next temple that is in the context of what we're talking about is known as Zerubbabel's temple. The one that was rebuilt, it was far inferior to this other temple, the Solomon's temple. So you know, in a sense, I see God saying, you see, it's not just the building. I don't dwell in just the building as glorious as the temple was. And again, it's like God is saying, you see, this temple is already beginning to diminish. You see? Because where does God really dwell? Well, He tells you in verse 2. The latter part of that verse. But this is the one that I will look. One who is poor. That word poor there doesn't mean materially, but in essence it means humble. It refers to those that are poor. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's who He's talking about here. Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, we're not... It's the opposite of those that were being taken away and enthralled by the things of this world and bringing into their, into their company these foreign wives. This is the opposite. This is those people that were under the leadership of God. They were seeking God. They were seeking to be separated from God. And they were poor in the sense that they felt that they were the downtrodden, the afflicted, and the oppressed. The ones that didn't fit in so good with this world. They were the ones that were struggling against this world. That is, this worldly system of which Satan is the God of. With a little g. And they were broken in spirit. You see, they were broken because the world offered them nothing. And God was their all in all. That is the person that God dwells with. I dwell with those who are poor and of a contrite spirit. Those that are broken, crushed. Those that have deep sorrow over their sins and the sins of those who call themselves brothers and sisters. The opposite of one who is proud or arrogant. And then he says, we've already looked at this, and I dwell with those who tremble at my word. I hear the Word of God. I take it seriously. It affects my life. And just as as Isaiah was there uh, in the temple and the very doorpost shook at the presence of God with only the angels crying out, how much more so ought we to tremble at the very Word of God? Paul was thankful for the Christians at Thessalonica because 
when they received the Word of God, they received it and welcomed it, not as the mere words of men, but as it is the very words of God. Back to our text in Ezra. Not only did the people of God tremble, but praise God, even those that were engaged in immorality were broken before the Lord. Look in chapter 10. Verse 1, Now while Ezra was praying, in his amazement, remember, his brokenness, his appall, being appalled, Ezra was praying, and he was confessing, and he was weeping. Do we do that for our brothers and sisters that have gone astray? Do we do that for a pagan world that we live in? You see, that, that's what God expects from us. Or has it just become a part of our lives? You just live with it. Oh, well, you know, it's the way it is. No. This is what we're to be doing, brothers and sisters. Weeping, bowing down, confessing, praying, seeking God. Before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to Him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. When you see, when those on the fence poles, they begin to see how serious we are about our faith and how broken we are before the true God and how that we love them and we care for them because they're caught up in a sin that's going to destroy their lives. It catches on, folks, when they see the reality of our hearts. That's what happened, is happening here. Those that were on the fence saw how much they were, how much the, the people of God were concerned about them, and they come and they're broken and they're crying out, weeping before the Lord. And then this one Shechaniah, the, of the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trans trespassed against our God, and we have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. There's still hope. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my Master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. You see, there's real confession. There's repentance. We're willing to put these wives away. Again, something's probably been going on for decades. And no doubt there was provision made for those they were put away. But you see, that's the way they were to deal with sin. To put it away. There's hope. There's hope in God where there's, where there's repentance among the people of God. And let me say to you today that there's still great hope among us in a church that has compromised. God is not finished with us. Look at Ezra chapter 9 in verse 8. Ezra's pretty down here in this particular verse as he reminisces on all that God had been doing and how God had been blessing 
by the preaching of the Word and how the people were turning from their sins. He was excited, but now he says, since he's found out about these foreign women that have come into their godly families, and now for a little while, grace has been shown to us from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in the midst of our bondage. He goes on to say, you know, we were slaves in Egypt and God has done all this. And I was in hopes that, that indeed we, we were, would be this remnant. But ah, oh, they were. They were. Because as we just read in the next chapter, God brought about, brought about a glorious repentance. And He says, you know, we're, the remnant of God is always that peg. When I think about the word peg, I think about the, the pegs that held up the very temple. Something that was secure. I would hope that Ezra is saying that we would would have been like that secure remnant as God has blessed us with a measure. Get those words? A measure of revival. And folks, that's the way it always is. You know? We're not going to have a worldwide revival until the Lord Jesus comes and calls us to Himself. But throughout this earth in the last 2,000 years of Christendom, that's what we see. We see measures of revival. Where people come before the Lord, they become astonished and appalled at sin. They're humiliated. They cry out to God. And God gives His presence. And God blesses. And the truth of God is, is made known. Well, This is what is happening here. And God did revive His people. He did not. We looked at the verse this morning. Even here, He did not cast off His people that He loved, but He continued to pour out His grace. Yes, His gifts and calling are irrevocable right here in this text. That was the truth then. That is the very truth now. You remember, Elijah thought it had all come to him. He had seen the glory of God manifested there on Mount Carmel. God had certainly manifested Himself as the only true God. As the fire of God came down from heaven and licked up the sacrifice to those prophets that were offering up a sacrifice to Baal. And it was manifested that God was the true God in Israel. What happened after that? Old Jezebel got pretty mad. And she said, I will not rest until I bring your life into the dust as these men have died because the Lord killed many of the prophets of Baal. And all of a sudden, Elijah's mindset changes and he begins to run away and he's hiding in a cave. And God comes to him. And Elijah says to God, Lord, I'm the only one left. All have forsaken. What did God say? No, Elijah. I've reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed his eye. See, God was faithful. God had a remnant then. You see, this is, this is what we can be encouraged about today. That God has a remnant. You're a part of that remnant. If indeed you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're seeking to be faithful. You love His Word. You're not perfect. You fall. 
But we come here in order to be built up with one another, to encourage one another, to love one another, pray for one another. You see, this is it. That God might give us right here, right now, a measure of revival as we hearken unto His Word. Love His Word. And love the brethren. God has promised here to see again. And really, this is the history of the whole Word of God. You see, the nation falling into sin. God reviving them, sending prophets, sending a messenger of the Word of God where they can be renewed. That was the prophecy. And we won't take the time to turn there. But the nation at times, the nation of Israel, had been depleted from the truth. But God always made a promise that He was not through with those people. And praise God, He's not through with us either. Because those whom He has called, those whom He has predestinated, He has also called. And those He has called, He has also justified. And those He has justified, He has also glorified. That's the work of God's grace. That's the work of His grace. Well, Isaiah gave the prophecy that, that even though the nation of Israel was dwindling, there was going to come a time that the nation of Israel would appear just like a, like a stump in the land. Like a mere stump. Okay? But from that stump, a branch was going to shoot off. And that branch was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that was going to come and give grace and mercy to a people that did not deserve it. Even though there would be those whose righteousness was as filthy rags, they would be purged as with hyssop. They would be made clean and they would be washed. A few weeks ago, we were hiking. Some of you guys remember this. We were we were on the bluff of the Buffalo River. And there along the, the bluff, there was a, a stump. It was a tree. It was a cedar tree. But it looked as if it was completely dead. That no life could come from it. Totally barren. No bark as it could be. When you look up, and it was about oh, uh, 8 or 10 feet high. And you look above, and there in its branches, unbelievably, in this supposedly completely dead tree that was growing out of the rock, there were green boughs on top of it. You see, how can that happen? You know, It's like a miracle. You see, that was the way Jesus came onto the scene. Isaiah also prophesied that He would come forth from a dry, barren ground. And yet He would be this living branch. And then Jesus would come along and say, I am the vine, and you are the branches, you see. Life from nothing. That's what God has done with His remnant throughout time. He preserves us. He gives grace. He does not give up on His people. He promises us that there will always be a remnant. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, as he reflects back upon Elijah and how Elijah had felt that he was the only one left, he says that even so, as it was with Elijah then, at this present time, right now, folks, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And that was among the nation of Israel. 
possibly principally there, but he also says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 32, even so, yet mercy has been given to all, both of Israel and of the Gentiles that are in this body of Christ, the, the new Israel of God. There is always a remnant according to the election of God's grace. And we can rejoice in that, folks. That God is working with His people. He's working with us. He's working with the remnant. And then the fact also that though we have sinned, there's forgiveness. The Scripture says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look in chapter 10. In verse 18. Chapter 10 and verse 18. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the falling were found of the sons of Jeshua, or Yeshua. The word is also Joshua. Of the sons of Joshua. And it goes on to list the sons who had taken these pagan wives and yet were forgiven. They were the sons of Joshua, the high priest. Now we have a commentary on Joshua, the high priest, and all that God had done for him in the Word of God. Keep your place there. This is very interesting. Turn with me to Zechariah. The second to the last book in the Old Testament. Third, isn't it? Zechariah. Haggai, Zechariah. No, it's the second. I I didn't do well in math. Zechariah chapter 3. This is a vision that the Lord gave to Zechariah. Then He showed me this Joshua that was a high priest who, by the way, worked in conjunction with the priest Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple. We'll have a vision of what God is doing here. Then He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan was standing in his right hand to oppose him. You get the picture here. Heavenly picture. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and and Satan is opposing Joshua. Then we read in verse 2, who's present? Who's present here? Let's make this crystal clear. There was Joshua the high priest, the angel of the Lord, and Satan. That's the ones that are there. And then in verse 2, we see, and the Lord said to Satan. So who's the Lord? Evidently, the angel of the Lord is the Lord Himself. This was the pre-incarnate, second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the Lord says to Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand that was plucked 
from the fire. You see, God hasn't cast off His people whom He loved. Yes, they had sinned. If there's repentance, they can come back and find a free assurance from God. He hasn't cast off His people. I thought of... uh, you know, Susanna Wesley referred to John Wesley as a brand that had been plucked from the fire as he had been miraculously saved from their burning home. And she dedicated John to the Lord as a brand that had been plucked from the burning. You see, God had chosen the nation of Israel not because they were greater than all the nations, yea, but they were the least, But God has chosen them. He had taken them out of the fire. They were a brand plucked from the fire. And here, now this is a little aside here. We're not told in Ezra that that Joshua himself took foreign wives, but that his children did. But Joshua here, this high priest, is being pictured as a nation himself. Okay? That God was sparing. He, Joshua, yea, Israel... Jerusalem had been picked. But look here. Look in in verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments depicting his sin. The children of Joshua, the children of Israel, had taken on themselves these foreign wives, had lapsed into idolatry, following their wicked practices, and they were, he was, the nation was, standing before God, clothed in this filth, of the nations standing before the angel. So what was going to happen? Absolute judgment from God and banishment. That's what they deserved. But look at verse 4. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your filthy, your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Put let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put on clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. You see? Praise God. In Christ, our guilt and our pollution, our filthiness has been removed. Because there is one that was to come and to intercede. That's what Zechariah is saying here. Isn't it interesting here that the one, this angel of the Lord who was proclaiming that there was one that was going to come and atone for you would be the one that would wash your sins away. He was the very one that was going to do it. For he says there in in verse 8, for there is a wondrous sign in the latter part of this verse for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. There's the branch again. The Messiah that was going to come. The one that was going to spring forth from this dry, this barren land. God was raising up a living branch, the Messiah, to come and to cleanse us from all of our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. We don't deserve to be called His people. We don't deserve this glorious cleansing. So how should it affect us? According to Leviticus and Peter, 
we're to be holy as the Lord our God is a holy God. The prophet Ezekiel in prophesying about the new covenant, he said there would come a time when God would cleanse His people. He would sprinkle them with clean water to cleanse them from all of their filthiness and take away also that heart of stone and place in them a heart of flesh and that He would place His Spirit in those and enable them of the new covenant to walk in power according to the precepts and the statutes of the Lord and to do what is pleasing in Him. You see what God was doing? God was working right then and there with His people, preserving that remnant, preserving that nation in order that the Messiah would come, in order that we might be partakers of this grace of the new covenant wherein God has poured out His Spirit and His blessings upon us. Paul said, therefore then, that we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the human spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Praise the Lord. As He worked with the old covenant in Israel, He is working with us. For Peter says concerning us that we also are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who, by the way, who were once not a people of God, but now are the people of God. A people who have not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. And all this is because of what God has done. Praise be to God who works out His covenant. The faithful God who never stops working in behalf of His people. All glory to God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.